I got a comment recently from someone on Twitter where they said, you're my favorite music writer with bad taste. Well, hey, hey, CNFers. I'm Brendan O'Meara, and this is CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast where I talk to people about the art and craft of telling true stories, leaders in narrative journalism, essay, memoir, doc film, and even podcasting, so you can get a little bit better at what you do. Today's guest is Stephen Hyden, but before we get to him, first a word from our flagship sponsors. Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the greatest podcast in the world, is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. Goucher MFA is a two-year low residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. Program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published. And Goucher's MFA for creative nonfiction or just straight up nonfiction. CNF is also brought to you by Baypath University. Discover your story with Baypath University's fully online MFA in creative nonfiction writing. Recent graduate Christine Brooks recalls her experience with Baypath MFA. MF, Bay, unbelievable. It, if, it wouldn't be a Baypath read if I didn't butcher it. I could edit this out, but I might as well leave it in because it's par for the course. Christine Brooks recalls her experience with Baypath's MFA faculty as being filled with positive reinforcement and a commitment. They have a true passion and love for their work. It shines through with every comment, every edit, and every reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer questions, big and small, and it is obvious that their years of experience as writers and teachers have made a faculty that I doubt can be beat anywhere. Don't just take your word for it. Apply now at baypath.edu slash MFA. Classes begin January 21st. Well, well, well. Look what the rift drug in. Yeah, yep, that's right. Welcome back, CNFers. CNF, of course, Creative Nonfiction Podcast, and today's guest is Stephen Hyden. He's a music and culture critic, and most recently he produced the amazing narrative podcast Break Stuff about Woodstock 99. What was so great about hearing him say Woodstock 99 on this here show was hearing his voice, like him right there saying it to me. I was like, that's the guy from the podcast saying Woodstock 99. Woodstock 99, he's got that great Midwestern accent, and it's just, uh, it hit it hit the notes. I was, I was hearing it, it was resonating. It fell on my tympanic membrane with a kind and loving memory. He's also the author of Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, Twilight of the Gods, and most recently, Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of Black Crows, of which he co-authored. I haven't read his books yet, full disclosure, uh, so we don't talk about him here. His, I, his main intention of coming on the show is to talk about that, that podcast. That's why I reached out to him, because guess who played at Woodstock 99? Metallica. We didn't talk about Metallica, but anyway. Uh, but... I'm going to have him back on the show, and we're going to talk about his books and the, his process behind, behind those and what those meant. So in any case, trying to simplify things, I believe it was this guy named Leonardo da Vinci who said simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Trying to do this and not get fined for my day job, that's kind of what I'm up to these days. That's it. But I have to admit, I feel oddly disconnected, like... If I'm not writing or querying or trying to generate features, then who the hell am I? Am I a fraud to talk to people who have the courage to write and publish while I'm doing this bridge, while I'm like this little bridge troll chewing on rocks and pretending like I know what I'm talking about and throwing rocks at people and just growling at them and drooling? I know on some fundamental level that's nonsense. But when you're not doing the thing and you're talking to people about doing the thing, sometimes you get a little jealous. Not envious, but like, oh man, 
what am I doing wrong in my, that in my spare time I squeak the show out to celebrate the kind of work I wish I was doing? But it's fine. It's okay. Things will happen. In the meantime, the goal is to make a podcast worth sharing, of course. A show that makes you want to tell ten of your friends, who will then hopefully tell ten of their friends. And I'm no mathematician, but I think that's exponential growth. So keep the conversation going on Twitter, at CNFPod, Instagram, at CNFPod, and Facebook, at CNF Podcast. You can search the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. You'll see it there. Like the page, you can engage. Where, like the page and engage. Hey, ask questions, share the show. I'll jump in with digital hugs and fist bumps. Also, at this point, I also want to thank River Teeth, a nonfiction journal, for promotional support. Go check them out. Submit your work to them. Submit to their book prize. Anyway, so Stephen Hyden is here, and he's a prolific writer for Uproxx. He wrote for Grantland for a time, and Break Stuff was his podcast that came out with The Ringer and Luminary Media. He's at Stephen underscore Hyden on Twitter. I think you're going to love this conversation. In fact, I know you're going to love this conversation I had with Stephen Hyden. So let's just get to it. Let's kick it. Here's me and Steve. Even uh, contributed handwritten uh, articles to your local paper. Uh, I think the first of which might have been U2's uh, Zuropa, a, a review of it. So uh, it was right in your blood from the be- beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. Uh, you know, there was a moment when I was around 12 or 13 where I made this calculation that I really liked music and I really liked to write. And it just seemed like the best possible life to figure out a way to combine those two things and yeah it it was really something that i kind of pushed to do uh from from a young age you know i I guess i was fortunate in that respect that like i i knew exactly what i wanted to do and and at that at that age how did you know perhaps that that was even a thing you could pursue i don't know i mean it that's a good question because I didn't really know anyone that was in the media. Mm-hmm. I, I had no connection to that world. I mean, I was growing up in, uh, in Wisconsin, you know, pretty far removed from any major media centers. And yeah, obviously this was pre-internet. Uh, so, I mean, really the only exposure I had to criticism as a kid was like watching Cisco and Ebert you know, on television. I mean, I think those were the first two people I'd ever seen that, you know, were professional critics. Like it was their job to watch movies and, and give their opinion about it. Like Roger Ebert was one of the, he was the first critic that I ever read. Like I went to the library and I, I checked out, you know, volumes of the Roger Ebert home companion. And I would just read them cover to cover in, in my bedroom and that's really how I learned how to write reviews, just reading Roger Ebert stuff. You know, I was also reading like Rolling Stone and, and Spin Magazine, stuff like that. I don't, it's so weird. Like my, my career is so kind of bizarre <laughs> because mm-hmm. I really had no idea what I was doing. You know, like I applied to one college it was a state school that wasn't terribly distinguished, you know, right. but it was like, it was where, you know, like when I was in high school, I wrote for my local newspaper and my editor there had, um, gone to this, gone to the same state school. So I applied there because that's where he went and I got accepted and I was like, okay, well, that's it. I don't need to apply anywhere else. <laughs> my first, uh, job out of college was working at the same, daily newspaper that I worked at in high school, you know, and I worked there for several years. Somehow I was able to kind of get out of that world and into like the internet world and and, and the music criticism world. But it was just sort of like sheer force of will, I guess, that allowed me to do that. Yeah. Did you have anyone in particular that was granting you permission or at least putting fuel in your tank saying like, Stephen, you're like, this is this is great. We see your passion. You've got some talent. Um, let's let's nudge you in this direction. Not really. I mean, I, I had a supportive editor at my first job, 
but you know, a lot of the things I was doing at that time were not, and it was, it wasn't anything that anyone really directed me to do or, or wanted me to do. You know, I, I sort of made myself the music critic of like my hometown paper, even though there was really no demand for a music critic. Mm. And, you know, I lived in this town that was like two hours from the major cities in Wisconsin, which are Milwaukee and Madison. You know, if Guided by Voices was playing a show in Milwaukee, I would get an interview with Robert Pollard and I would write up a big story. <laughs> I mean, no one at the paper really cared that I was doing this. Really, No one really wanted me to do it. I just did it because I wanted to do it and I could kind of talk my way into doing it. And at the same time I was doing that, I was also working on the weekend and covering tractor poles small town festivals like the strawberry festival in Wapaka, Wisconsin. Like I wrote about that like three or four times, but like these sort of music stories were things that I did just sort of sneaking it, sneaking it in under the wire. I would say that for me, like the big inspiration at that time was Chuck Klosterman mm, yeah, because he was the only person that I had seen who came from a similar background you know, from the middle of the country, you know, he worked for daily newspapers. He was also, but he was eventually able to write a book and then he got hired by spin and he entered into that sort of mainstream music criticism, music criticism world, like the national media. And from what I could tell, like he had no connections to that. And I remember reading Chuck stuff on the, on the wire when he was still at the Akron Beacon Journal, like in the early 2000s, like right around the time that he wrote Fargo Rock City, it was the kind of stuff that I wanted to do. Like he was, a, he was, I think he's about maybe five or six years older than I am. So he was like sort of like the upper class, upperclassman. Mm -hmm. He was like the high school senior and I was like the freshman. Right. It was just hugely inspirational to me because to, because it's so much different now because of social media that, you know, it, it's easy to know who the big editors are. Like, we all know who the editors are at the New York Times or the New Yorker or any of these sort of prestige publications that everyone wants to write for. But, like, in 2000 or 2001, it was a lot harder to know who these people were, especially if you were in the middle of the country. Um, so to see someone from a similar background enter that world, you know, it's sort of like if you're from Mars – and you see a fellow Martian get to the planet Earth. You're like, wow, maybe I can get to the planet Earth. You know, right. and that's that's really how it felt. I have a love hate relationship with social media, but as much as I hate it, sometimes I realize that I would not be able to be in this business without it. You know, someone who doesn't live in New York or Los Angeles and has never lived in those places. You know, I, I I lived for years in Wisconsin, and now I live in Minnesota. Um, I wouldn't be able to do this job if it weren't for you know having a presence on on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I've met a lot of people that way, and I've I've gotten a lot of jobs like that. And now I'm fortunately in a position where I'm kind of well known enough where it doesn't really matter where I live. But for a long time, I needed that to to get my name out there. I was very self-motivated for a very long time. Would you say that that self-motivation is kind of your superpower if you had one? I guess. I mean, I think anyone who works in this business and has been around for a while. And, you know, I'm at the point now where, you know, I, I started my first job in the year 2000. And, you know, I worked at a hometown paper. I, I worked at a hometown daily newspaper. I worked at an alt weekly. I've worked in websites. I've done podcasts. I've written books. You know, I've kind of done like a little bit of everything. I think in order to do that, you really do have to be self-motivated. You do have to ultimately be able to exist without a whole lot of outside encouragement. Not that, I mean, obviously we all need encouragement. We all need someone to tell us that we're good at what we do and that you know, we need to we need to be connected to some kind of community as a writer you really do need to be able to like look at yourself and say I'm going to do this no matter what <laughs> you know even yeah. if people don't like what I'm doing on this particular day or you know even if I feel sort of discouraged 
um, at this particular moment, I'm going to find a way to persevere because ultimately, you know, if you decide to quit, like no one's going to care, <laughs> you know, yeah. like no one is going to care about your career as much as you do. And you can make some grand proclamation on your Facebook page. You can say, hey, I, I have decided to leave the media business. I have decided to retire as a writer. And you may get some, you know, nice comments on that particular day. You might get a lot of likes or, or retweets or whatever. Uh, but by the next day, people are going to forget and they're going to move on with their own lives. And you're going to be in your own life trying to figure out what you're going to do. I feel like I've always kind of had that. I, I've, I've always had that knowledge that even if people are sort of supporting what you're doing in the moment, they're not going to be there forever. Like you are still going to be in your own sort of life and you're the commander of your life. The, you know, the validation that you need, but has to come, come from within. And if you're looking for it to come, you know, externally, you're eventually going to run out of fuel. <laughs> yeah. I know through writing about, um, writing about sports a lot, specifically horse racing and everything, um, just kind of my my niche in, in a lot of things. Um, writing about it and covering it uh, often, it kind of um, kind of ruined it in a lot of ways for me. And I wonder if you experienced that with, with uh, writing about music, because music's so important to you. I wonder if writing about it, um, you know, some dampened your enthusiasm in any kind of way. No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm at a point now, you know, I've been writing about music in some professional capacity for, you know, a couple decades now. And I can honestly say that, like, I like music more now than I ever have. I have gone through periods, though, where I had, I experienced something similar to what you're describing. And I remember, like, you know, when I was at Grantland, for that site, I was basically like the music columnist where I was writing about I mean, I had a lot of freedom to write about what I wanted to write about, but it was also understood that I was going to write about whatever the big release was that week. And I ended up writing about like a lot of pop music stuff. And I, I like writing about pop music stuff. You know, it's an interesting thing to me. I, and I think I did a good job with it when I was at Grantland. But the thing I realized about it is that if I'm going to write about, say, a Katy Perry record, I can only do it as like a purely sort of intellectual exercise, hmm. you know, which might sound counterintuitive to say that about a Katy Perry record. But what I mean by that is that I, I don't feel personally a lot of passion about that. Like that's not an artist that sort of makes me excited as a music fan, but I can turn on the part of my brain that's a critic and engage myself into sort of looking at her career in a purely analytical way. And I can do that and I can write about it and I think I can do a good job with it. But the sort of passion of being a music fan is missing. And I feel like with a lot of that kind of writing that I've done in my career, like this sort of like pop music writing, it was going down that avenue. I think I'm happiest as a music critic, when I'm just sort of allowed to follow my muse, you know, when I'm allowed to like write about stuff that I just think is interesting or that I think is great, but it's something that I'm fully engaged with as a music fan. And I, and I've just found that for me, like I'm happiest as a critic when the music fan in me is also being fed, you know? And I think maybe that's where people get disillusioned when the music fan in them isn't being fed mm. when when writing about music or, or writing about film or, or in your case, writing about sports becomes purely an analytical exercise and you're not engaged. Like your heart isn't engaged. It's all about your head. And that's the thing I realized about myself is that if I'm just going to be sort of analyzing like the pop music sweepstakes, you know, like mm. what's the latest trend What's the, you know, who's, who's going to be the next big star? Like, what's the next big thing? Like that sort of prognostication aspect of music writing, which I think needs to be there. And I understand why it is. Again, I've engaged in that. And I think it's, I, I think it can be interesting, but ultimately to me, it's emotionally empty. Mm. You know, like I would much rather write about an artist who 
maybe isn't part of the pop music world, but I think is really great and is sort of under the radar. And like, I want to tell people about it in the same way that like, if you and I were friends, I would say, Hey, you got to check out this record. It's really great. You're going to really love it. And it's, it doesn't matter if it's on the charts or if it's not, you know, the, the sort of zeitgeisty type phenomenon. It's just something that engages you, engages your heart. Yeah, that that's great. Like that's such a a great point to underscore about just having at least the a passion for the for the the craft of the thing, even if even if like you're not thrilled about a particular record, it's still the process of being able to deconstruct it and try to tease out meaning and then write about it in an engaging way. It's like the same reason like John McPhee writes so well about geology or something. It's just like, oh yeah, I'll follow, I'll follow McPhee all the way down the geology rabbit hole because he's so fascinated with it. So it's like, similarly, you know, even though I might not listen to Taylor Swift, I know if, if I see a Stephen Hyden byline on Taylor Swift's review, I'm like, well, I'm going to tune in for the review at least. Yeah. And I, that's always like the best compliment that someone can pay if they say, I don't really care about what you're writing about, but the fact that you wrote it makes me interested in you know, this, this topic, that's always like the best thing for me. Cause I always feel like, you know, like the, the, the pieces that do the best usually in terms of traffic are usually tied to topics that are already popular anyway. So I sometimes feel like it doesn't really matter if I wrote about this because people would want to click on this, you know, if, if anyone wrote about it, I, I got a comment recently from someone on Twitter where they said, you're my favorite music writer with bad taste, <laughs> which I thought was like sort of the ultimate Twitter comment to get. <laughs> and I decided to take it as a compliment because to me, what that means is I usually don't agree with you, but I still like to read what you have to say. That's like the best. That's the best thing that anyone could say to me, I think. And uh, there's a great line, you know, speaking of your writing, that you wrote in uh, after David Berman passed. Um, it's towards the end of the the piece you wrote, and it was just a a, a sentence that he you, know, he you wrote that he said um, uh, he often doubted his ability as a musician and a singer, and um, which was you know really touching, especially towards the end. And uh, I would kind of um, maybe extend that to you. Um, is are there any things that in your own in writing, your own writing and producing? in terms of audio that maybe uh, you doubt as, you know, as your own, as your own artist that you doubt in yourself that you have to try to overcome. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of things. I mean, you know, the craziest thing about, you know, living on living like in an online world and dealing with people sometimes who don't like what you do um, and, and them telling you that is, you tend to agree with the people who don't like what you do more than the people who do like what you do. You know, trolls have a way of articulating the very things that the critical voice in your head is saying, which is what makes that such a upsetting thing to read. You yeah, know, cause there's some people, truth to it. Well, yeah. Sometimes. Or like, you know, or, I don't know if it's true or if it's like, I mean, because I think that with anyone, you know, with any writer, it really depends on the reader ultimately and as far as like how well something is communicated. I mean, I think obviously as a writer, you take a lot of care and time in, in trying to articulate your thoughts and, and put it in the best possible way. But there's a relationship with the reader that needs to be there in order for a piece of writing to really come across. And there are readers who are warm and charitable and readers who are very predisposed to not like what you do. The filter is very important, you know, cause I, I, I think about this when I write books because to me, like a book, it's like taking a road trip with someone, you know, you're the driver as the author and the reader is in the shotgun seat. And you really need for that, for that reader, you know, to think that your stories are interesting, 
to think that the records that you're going to be playing on the radio are, are cool and, you know, that they want to hear them. And they're going to want to – and you need them to think that wherever you're driving is a place that they want to go. And if they're on board with that, a book can really blossom and become this beautiful thing. If they're not on board with that, if they're, if they're like, hey, I don't like this first person that you're using. I don't like the subject matter. I don't like – the way that you're choosing to use humor in this particular way, you know, all these sort of aesthetic choices that you're making as a writer, if they're not on board with those things, it doesn't matter how well you execute them. You know, yeah. like you're screwed, you're screwed. Like, like they're against you. You know, like, I, like I realized this from reading, you know, Goodreads reviews because like, you know, Goodreads is notorious for having reader reviews from people who, like read books on topics that they have no interest in. You know, they're like, yeah. like, like I just wrote a book, like I had a book that came out last year called Twilight of the Gods. It's about classic rock. And I got reviews on there who are, they're like, I don't, I don't care about classic rock. And I read this book and it was really boring. And I don't like, like this isn't interesting. Like, but it's like, like, why would you read a book that you're not interested in? And yeah, you're pulling I, down like, my rating too. It, well, yeah, too. But it's like it, I'm kind of like, impressed that they would read <laughs> a book from cover to cover that they have no interest in, and that they had no really chance of ever liking. And then they get to the end, and they're like, "Okay, time to file the review. This book sucked. I wasn't interested in it at the start of it, and at the end of it, I still wasn't interested in it." Um, and of course, I read that, and I think, well, if I was a better writer, I could have made them interested in it. But the fact of the matter is, is that if the reader isn't going to be on board with you, um, it's just really hard to get to where you want to go. Uh, so it's tough because I think every writer has the voice of like the reader in their head that is like least interested in what they're doing. <laughs> you know, the reader who says all your jokes aren't funny. You know. Everything you're interested in, you know, like all the things you care about are stupid, you know, uh, and and your thoughts on these things are stupid. Like the Simpsons uh, comic book guy is in your head. Yeah, I think every writer has that voice in their head. And there are actually people like that in the world. You know, there are actually people like that who are just not on your wavelength at all. And yet they've still decided to maybe check out something that you've done and tell you that they're not on your wavelength. Um, you just have to be able, you have to have the fortitude to say that I still want to do what I, what I, what I, what I'm doing. And I think people who are like on my wavelength are responding to it. And hopefully, you know, there's enough people on your wavelength, uh, that will help, you know, that will enable you to be able to make a living at this. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, you really need those good readers on your side. Now, you're, of course, your primary vocation is a, is a writer, uh, and, and Break Stuff, of course, is a narrative podcast. So I, I, as we start to unpack that a little bit, I, I wonder, like, maybe when you were conceiving of the idea, how, uh, how you, what was the thought process between choosing, say, to go the podcast route with it versus saying maybe a, a gigantic uh you know, narrative feature in an in a online or in a magazine or a multi-part series like that. So uh, how did you make that decision? With Break Stuff, it really started with wanting to work in that particular medium, you know, like a scripted podcast mm -hmm. series. Um, yeah, I was a huge fan of, of Slow Burn, the podcast that Leon Nathan did with, with Slate. And, uh, and also, uh, you must remember this. Uh, by Karina Longworth. Mm -hmm. Those were hugely inspirational to me. Inspirational in the sense that I just loved the shows. I thought they were really well done. You know, if I follow their example, you know, I think I could do my own version of this. So after that, it just became a matter of like trying to find the right subject, uh, you know, to do my version of that. And Woodstock 99 was just something I came upon, I think, fairly quickly. And I just had a really clear ver like vision of it uh, from the beginning. You know, I, I, I was looking at the email that I sent to Sean Fennessy at The Ringer 
which was I sent that at the end of August of 2018, so almost exactly a year ago. And you know, I outlined how I saw the show, and the outline that I sent was like pretty close to how the show ended up being. You know, from there, I just ended up you know doing a lot of reading about Woodstock '99, and eventually got in a position like where we started interviewing people and it it just came together. It it just felt very natural to do it. And it ended up being a format that I really loved to me, like podcasts, like these sort of documentary podcasts that are really becoming popular now. I think eventually they're going to sort of make oral histories obsolete, you know, because Mm, like whenever you read an oral history, you know, they're so fun to read but if you could actually hear those people talking, you know, it just makes it so much better. And to me, like Woodstock 99, like oh, the break stuff, I think that could have been an oral history. But it just made it so much more powerful to hear like John Cher, one of the promoters of, of the festival, like to hear his voice and to hear his like New Jersey accent, you know, actually say the words that he was saying. Um, and that tinge of anger some, uh, at being right. blamed for so much of what went wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and just the nuances that you get when you can actually hear people's voices. And, you know, for me, it was it, it was also really nice because I, I love documentaries. And, you know, similar to when I got in, involved in journalism – you know, in the early 2000s, like I had no clue about how to get involved in sort of like national publications. Like now, like it's like I, I don't really have an entree into the world of documentaries, but I feel like after doing this show, like I kind of know the process. Like, like I, this wasn't a film. Like we didn't shoot any visuals, obviously, but like every other aspect of like documentary filmmaking and like how to script something like that. Um, you know, we did that with this show. So like, I, I, I feel like I've got a much better understanding of that. It was just great. I mean, it was really scary at the beginning to do it. You know, I kind of freaked out when I saw the schedule of like, cause I had to write eight scripts and I was basically writing a script a week for about two months. And that was very intimidating. I feel like I wanted to push myself, you know, in a medium that I hadn't really worked in before. Uh, at least not in this way. Like I'd been involved in podcasts, but doing like I started my own podcast in 2016. It was a show called Celebration Rock, but that was like a talk show essentially, where I was interviewing a different guest every week. Yeah, and it wasn't. You know, this was much more ambitious than that. So, to me, it's like another storytelling medium. It's another way to talk about the things that I'm interested in. What was the the challenge for you, uh, given that Woodstock '99 had uh, so much coverage, books written about it, investigative journalism? So, what was the challenge in uh, trying to maybe unearth a new way of telling the story, and maybe unearth some information that wasn't heard before? So, your spin on it was definitely unique and new to the year. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you know one of the things that I felt made Woodstock '99 such a good topic for a show is that. You know, much like Watergate with with Slow Burn, it's a it, you know it, it's a story that I think a lot of people know, like the sort of general outlines of it. But you know, few people know like the specifics. You know, like you'd have to read a lot of Watergate books to be mm-hmm. as well versed as Leon Nafok is when you listen to Slow Burn. And yeah, and I really found that to be the case with, with Woodstock 99. I mean, we, we kind of play on that a little bit in our first episode where we talk about the Limp Bizkit performance because, you know, I think that is the sort of most iconic moment of that festival. And that's why I wanted to start with that um, because, you know, I think the common perception is that, you know, Limp Bizkit played this festival, they played the song Break Stuff, and then there was a huge riot and lots of fires and the festival ended as this big catastrophe when the reality is, is that Limp Bizkit played some people in the audience got pretty crazy, but like it didn't end the festival at that moment. Like the, the riots that occurred at Woodstock 99 didn't happen until the next day. 
So that was sort of an interesting thing to talk about as far as the gap between the reality and, and, and the myth of the festival. And that just opened a portal to talk about so many other things, you know, whether it was the minutia of like how that festival was planned and like all the mistakes that were made along the way to the sort of greater mythology of the Woodstock brand in general and the idea of music festivals being this sort of, you know, utopian free, you know, area that you can just do whatever you want in, you know, you can take a lot of drugs, you can like, you know, have free love, you can like listen to music, all these, you know, fun things that we associate with the original Woodstock. And then connecting that to this festival that occurred 30 years later, where the ideology of the original Woodstock curdled in this sort of bizarre and violent and scary way. Um, that just seemed like a great way to talk about, you know, baby boomers versus generation X and mm -hmm. the sort of way that nostalgia distorts the past in order to turn it into a commodity and how, when that happens, it ends up replacing history. So we don't learn the lessons that we should from history and it unfolds all these decades later into this disaster that ends up you know causing so much harm it just seemed like a great idea for a show like something that seems so silly and frivolous on on the surface that is actually kind of like an epic story about america i think ultimately what ultimately uh surprised you the most about uh this deep dive you took over the last year well you know i had written about woodstock 99 um, like several years ago, I, when I was at the AV Club, I, I wrote this 10-part series uh, about 90s rock. It was called Whatever Happened to Alternative Nation. And it was almost like an excuse to write a book, but like on a website. You know, like each installment was like 5,000 words. So this whole series was like 50,000 words. It's like a pretty wow. large-scale thing. And it's kind of crazy. It's like that's the kind of thing that you could do on the internet like 10 years ago. Like, I don't think you could do that now. It's like, there really is like a before and after social media. Cause I really, I, I really think of like social media becoming a big deal in the media in like 2010, 2011 around there. Like before that, <laughs> I don't want to be another sort of bullshit mythologizing nostalgist here, but it does seem like things were simpler before that. You know, like I remember at the AV club, we would post every story that we were going to run that day on our website at midnight and the site wouldn't change all day. It'd just be the same stories all day long. It was basically like a, like a newspaper cover you know that whole idea and you could do that you know and people would come to your site and they would read everything on the site you know even like if you had loyal readers they would do that like like loyal readers of a newspaper would like they'll read it cover to cover because this is the thing that we read every day so that series really kind of came out of, came out of that era and really came at the end of that era and anyway, I wrote about Woodstock 99 for that. And in that piece, I was very, like, the condemnation was of, like, Limp Bizkit and Korn and, and, and new metal in general. It was very critical of the bands. And it took the tack that, like, became, like, a pretty common tact in the media, which was looking at those bands as sort of, like, examples of, like, cultural decay. Hmm. You know, that, like, these bands... Like I think my thesis of my piece was that that like Limp Biscuit was sort of setting up the the Bush administration of the two thousands. You know, this sort of like macho, very sort of you know aggressive man's man type music that was ultimately insensitive to you know women and minorities and all this. That was the thesis of my piece, and. You know, I read that now and I think I was like pretty unfair to those bands, actually. I think it was like, I, I don't think that was right to lay on them. And 
if you listen to break stuff, I, I take a much different position on that where it's not about blaming the bands. It's really about one talking about the organizers, just all the mistakes that they made, you know, in planning that festival and also, you know, the, the politicians, uh, that were, you know, pushing that festival, like in the, in the Rome, New York area. Um, and also again, talking about just the momentum of the Woodstock brand in general and how, that was created over the course of, you know, several decades about how, you know, there was a, there was a festival that occurred in 1969 that had a lot of problems, but a movie came out the next year that sort of transformed this problematic festival into this generation defining event. And it created this phenomenon that people tried to recreate not once but twice in the 1990s you know in 99 you know obviously a disaster and i think just exploring that was maybe not a surprise but i think i was just able to make a much more nuanced look at this you know than i was when i wrote about it several years earlier you know that it could be a portrait of something, you know, because I feel like ultimately like break stuff, it's not about like blaming any one person in particular, because I think there's a lot of blame to go around. You know, I think everyone that was involved in that festival contributed to it becoming the disaster that it was, whether it's the promoters, whether it's the, you know, the media in some respect, whether it's the people that actually attended uh, who chose to act in, a, in you know, violent and brutish ways you know, just trying to avoid like easy answers you know like the pad answer whether it's like oh it's new metal's fault or it's you know generation x's fault or whatever you know just trying to avoid that sort of pat reductive sort of answer and looking at it more broadly and also you know like in the last episode to me it was really important to talk about how you know, the weirdness of that festival isn't just true of Woodstock 99 that you could apply to other festivals. You know, like if you go to Coachella, for instance, you know, you're not going to see shirtless guys assaulting women necessarily, although there is still a lot of sexual harassment and assault that occurs at music festivals, you know, not just Coachella, but, you know, everywhere. Um, but you know the the sort of power dynamics that were in, that were in play at Woodstock '99 they're not as overt now. But if you go to Coachella, for instance, it's like about the power of status now. Mm. That you know, like at Woodstock '99, there was there were these men that were sort of asserting their power over women, or there were there was generational power. This idea that like baby boomers can kind of force Woodstock to still be relevant, you know, even in the age of Generation X. Uh, or, you know, at the end of the festival, there's the power of the herd, you know, like the herd decides that they want to riot and they end up sort of overwhelming everything and setting fires. And you don't see that at Coachella, but you do see people, you know, with their VIP badges and living in like air conditioned teepees, eating like this great food, you know, and taking great pictures of themselves and like having an experience at the festival that the average person is not going to get. But like we're all going to see. You know, we're all going to see the people who are backstage and living the life that we all wish that we could live. And that's like another form of domination. You know, it's like it, it's not as overtly scary, but I think it's as in its own way, it's as it's it's as alienating as the power dynamics that existed with Slack 99. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like the capital in the Hunger Games, you know, how that right. that decadence is its own form of dominance. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to me, that that's what makes this story bigger than just a music festival. I think it is about human nature, that idea that like we're always going to want to separate ourselves in some way. And, and, and why is that? You know, why is it that we feel that some people are going to feel the need to assert their dominance over other people? And why does it play out in this environment that is supposed to be this fun experience about enjoying music but it ends up kind of creating this own society 
that uh, has its own rules, but sort of replicates the rules of the larger society. You know, it's it's a very. I mean, we use the term social experiment in the show, like about Woodstock '99. Um, but I think all festivals, in a way, become social experiments. You know, yeah. about like what, what, why people are the way they are. Yeah, and to to that point, it was, that was something I wanted to bring up was uh, the 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 gentleman you spoke to in the final episode about uh, about if you had an unethical uh, scientist basically who ran an experiment, it would probably it would probably look like Woodstock '99 in the sense that it, there would be no water, there would be heat, which would breed frustration, and in the the overlapping area in those three is basically the powder keg of Woodstock, Woodstock '99. Yeah, and he was an interesting guy. You're talking about Dr. Leonard Newman, who was this um, psychology professor from Syracuse University. And, you know, we interviewed him towards the end of the show or the end of our production. And, you know, the process of reporting for this podcast, it definitely made me more cynical about music festivals and and just about crowds in general and the whole sort of mob mentality idea that if you get a bunch of people in one space, that inevitably they're going to default to some sort of like negative or aggressive behavior. And and Dr. Newman was really great because he, he pushed back on that. And he, he talked about that. He didn't like the term mob mentality either. He thought that that was sort of inherently like a, a negative way of, of, of talking about crowd psychology. He, he liked the term herd mentality and he was talking about the idea that like when people are in groups you know they, they they tend to act differently than they would be if they were just individuals because when you're in a group obviously you feel less culpability or less responsibility for your own actions and that can obviously result in negative behavior but he's saying like that can also result in positive behavior like there's examples of people being more heroic or more brave than they would be normally because they're in a group um, it's really about sort of the other circumstances in the environment that that ultimately points people in either the positive or the negative direction. And, and that's why you said the thing that you talked about, how if you were going to create a situation where people were going to go to the dark side, <laughs> mm-hmm. that you would generate a, a scenario like Woodstock 99, because it just seemed engineered to make the group act in a bad way. I, a part of me was thinking like it was going to be some sort of, um, I don't know, like talking more to like the main headliner acts kind of almost uh, as, as ignorant and stupid as this might sound kind of like a recap from the, uh, of the bands that were there and maybe some of the band's point of view. And it was so great and refreshing that you were able to take the dive you took and to t- tell such a, a bigger story and examine it with nuance and everything you did. So it was, it was what a delightful surprise. And I'm so, so happy you made this, made this work. And I have to thank you and applaud you for it. Well, thank you so much. That's really nice of you to say. I mean, I, I feel like what you're talking about where, you know, that, that approach where you're basically just talking about the performances on stage and like how crazy they are and how in many cases they're, they're very schlocky and sort of unintentionally hilarious, right. you know, like that, that's sort of the common way to talk about Woodstock 99, you know, to like laugh at the bands basically on stage. And, um, I didn't really want to do that because Number one, I think that's a very easy thing to do. It's very easy to always, you know, look 20 years in the past and look at the things that used to be popular and to point out all the sort of, you know, anachronistic things about them. You know, like people are going to do that about 2019 and 2039, like in ways that we don't really realize. But there's there's tons of things about our culture now that are probably hilarious that we don't notice yet. Um to me, it was more interesting to look at that time and to make it relevant to now, you know, to not look at what was different, but to look at what's common. And there are a lot of and there's a lot of things about it that are very specific to 1999. But there's also a lot of things about it that I think are pretty universal. Um, and I think that's ultimately like the most powerful parts of the story. Great, right? 
Stephen Hyden, good dude, great dude, a great dude. Go check out his work. So I need to give out a recommendation again. Since I recorded this before, that was a thing. I couldn't ask Steve to recommend anything. So here it is. I'm going to do this again for a second consecutive week. My recommendation is the Blackwing Long Point Pencil Sharpener. Sharpens your pencils easy peasy. It's nice and small. I've been using a single pencil for several months now in my journal. I've been counting the words in that pencil, and it's up to 94,000 words. I'm hoping to get to 100,000. It's cutting cutting it very close. It's kind of painful to write with now. But we're getting there. When I sh- but when I sharpen the pencil, I use the black wing long point sharpener. Okay. Thanks to <laughs> Thanks to uh, Goucher's MFA in nonfiction, Baypath University's MFA in creative nonfiction, and of course River Teeth for the support. If you think this podcast is worth sharing, Try and get your pals to subscribe and keep that conversation going on the internet. Let this episode kickstart a dialogue that carry us, carries us through our work week into the next week. Why not, right? We're here to support each other. It's at CNF Pod on almost all the socials. Head over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the second best newsletter in the world. Once a month, no spam. You can't beat it, so far as I can tell. That's got to be it, right? Hey, you know what? If you can do, interview. See ya.